Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 again, Romans chapter 12. As you're turning there, let me just say that we are in no hurry to get through these first two verses especially. I think if you were to enjoy a meal, it's much better to stop and go in than to take something through the drive-thru, and we are certainly not going to drive through these first two verses, which are so loaded, every phrase, every word, with truth that is application has implications for so much of who we are and what we do. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the words that has dominated our news cycles for the last few years is the word radical. Specifically, it's been most associated with the controversial phrase radical Islamic terrorism. What is radical Islamic terrorism? Well, to understand the phrase, we need to first ask, what is radical Islamism? I looked to the dictionary to find this out, and this is what it said, quote, an Islamic revivalistic movement often characterized by moral conservatism, literalism, and, listen to this, the attempt to implement Islamic values in all spheres of life, end quote. Does that sound a little bit like our mission statement? Here's the reality. Radical Islam is simply made up of Muslims who attempt to take the Quran seriously and apply it faithfully. If you don't believe me, then listen to these passages from the Quran. This is from Quran 2, verses 191 through 193. Kill the unbelievers wherever you find them, and fight them until there is no more unbelief, and worship is for Allah alone. Quran 8:12. Strike off their heads. And strike them from every strike them from them every fingertip. Quran 9, Allah has purchased from believers their lives and their properties. In exchange for that, they will have paradise. They fight in the cause of Allah, so they slay and are slain. Quran 61:4. Truly, Allah loves those who fight his cause in battle array. And then from one of their commentary books, Sahih Muslim 133, 
The messenger of Allah said, I have been commanded to fight against people until they testify that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. What do we make of that? Well, in other writings, you see that it is promised to those who would die in battle for Allah that the promise is, for males anyway, is an endless enjoyment of sexual pleasures. Understand this. Radical Islam is merely the Islam of the Quran. Okay? All other what we, what we term peaceful Islam is liberal Islam. To follow the Quran is to apply these verses. I want to be clear. It is a satanic devilish religion built completely on selfish self-gratification just as the Quran commands. However, don't miss that principally there is a parallel with biblical Christianity. Now let me explain what I mean. What should the Christianity of the Bible produce? The Islam of the Quran produces suicidal mania. What does the Christianity of the Bible produce? Well, to begin our understanding of that, let's look no further than the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus himself. And I want to tell you, we're only going to get through point one of four today because this, this is an issue that if we don't understand and, and we miss, we miss completely what Christianity really is. Listen to what Jesus said. Luke 9, 23, he was saying to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You understand what take up a cross means? Pick up the instrument of your own execution and be willing to die. Matthew 20, verse 26 to 28, is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Opposite of Islamic fundamentalism, which says pursue your own selfish pursuits for selfish gratification, Christianity says, no, die to yourself and make your life about everyone but you. You are a servant. Mark 8, verse 34 and following, Jesus summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is a, uh, an idea that he repeated many times. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For whoever is ashamed of me and ashamed of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Mark 10, 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, the rich young ruler, one thing you lack, go and sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. The Lord said in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, blessed, translate happy, blessed and happy are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil, listen to this, for the sake of the Son of Man. Matthew 6, 25. Jesus said, For this reason I say to you, don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 23, verse 12. Jesus said, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, but whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. And Matthew 10, verse 37 to 39. He who loves father or mother more than me, Jesus said, is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. We go back to Romans 12, and in Romans 12, 1 and 2, these two short verses, the Holy Spirit provides for us a simple, succinct summation of the content to which Jesus calls every believer we just read. Let me take an aside for a minute. One of the myths that we, we need to debunk, we need to constantly dissolve and evaporate in our minds is this, that there are at least two kinds of Christians. The first are the super committed Christians, those who give their whole life to the gospel. And then there are average, normal Christians. How many times have we said it? Jesus is not to be a part of our lives, rather the, the point of our lives. There's no such thing as supercharged Christians and average normal Christians. There's only one standard given in God's word. To this, our Lord spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. 
These are words to which we continue to return over and over in our exposition of God's word. When I pray for our church, these words make me tremble, physically and literally. Matthew 7, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, stop right there. Not everyone who calls Jesus their Lord, not everyone who says they belong to him, not everyone who says... Lord, Lord, to the Lord in the final judgment will enter into the kingdom of God, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Jesus is saying there are people who claim to have a relationship with me who even call me Lord who in the final judgment won't enter into heaven. That's a remarkable phrase. Many will say to me on that day, what a frightening path. Many, not a few. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, they call him Lord twice. Did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out many demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Look what we did in your name, Jesus. Don't you owe us heaven? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Said in other words, go to hell. Depart from me. You who practice, live, lawlessness. You live outside of the pages of God's word. Let me summarize what I, let Jesus rather summarize this in what he said to his disciples in Caesarea. We commented briefly on this a moment ago. Let me read it in full context. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, follow me, be one of mine, he must deny himself. Remember how he said Islam is based on the great rewards of paradise, the selfish sexual rewards. No, you deny yourself. It's not about us. You take up your cross. You're willing to die to anything and everything, and you follow me. What he says, who he is, is the, the trajectory of everything we do and think and say. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then he says it so clearly, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, you get everything you want, and you forfeit your soul? And then he says, what will you give? What will a man give in exchange for a soul? What is so important in this life that it's worth the temporary enjoyment and to give up all eternity? We say it every Sunday. Do you believe it? We exist to magnify God and spread a passion for his glory by making disciples and shepherding them, listen, to value Jesus Christ above all elsewhere, everywhere, in every dimension of life as God's word instructs us. I think that the terrorists have hijacked the word radical. A Christian living biblically, lives a life that can only be called radical. So we're going to start diving into these two verses in Romans 12. 
I'm going to spend a few weeks here because it's so critical and such important data. And as we do, we're going to look at four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. Four components for living a radical, authentic Christian life. These are the components to make you mature. These are the components to make you holy. These are the components to make you happy and enjoy the life that God has called you to because only a holy Christian is a happy Christian. And if you're a happy Christian and you're unholy, you need to question whether you're a Christian at all. Number one, a doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. Let's look at the doctrinal motivation for radical commitment. We began looking at this last week. We're going to pick up uh, on it now and add to it. Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Every phrase is pregnant with implication and application. What is it that motivates people to change their behavior? What is it that motivates people to change their thinking? What would motivate someone to fight their sin they so want to enjoy and pursue holiness that's against all their inclinations? What would, it motivate, what would motivate a person to change their job, lose their job, leave their home, give of their resources, forsake their families, risk their very lives, and sometimes to be martyred in the name of Jesus. What would motivate such living and such thinking? Paul tells us in a phrase, the mercies of God would do that. The mercies of God would, would, would elicit and solicit such commitment. As we studied last week, there is an important connection between theology and life, between what we know and what we do, between how we think and how we live. Uh, my, one of my favorite commentators, C.E.B. Cranfield, says this in his commentary, his excellent commentary on Romans. Obedience is not general and abstract. It is concrete and must be expressed in both thought and action. Can I read that again? Obedience is not general. It's not abstract. It is concrete and must be expressed in both thought and action. Look at the comprehensive nature of this. Just, just look at these verses in total. All of who we are is really what we think and what we do, right? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, there's the external, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God with your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see that? Mind and body. It's not abstract. It's not general. It's thought and action. The gospel has ethical implications that are radical. Let me say it as clearly as I can. The gospel will change your life if you believe it. And if your life hasn't changed, there's question about whether you believe the gospel. Let's break this opening uh, uh, phrase down really verse by, or phrase by phrase, word by word. Therefore, we talked about this last, last week. In fact, we spent the whole time looking at the word therefore. It's based on the first 11 chapters. It's also based on the discussions of God's sovereignty in chapters 9 through 11 that describe the mercy of God. He says, therefore, based on what I've told you that's true about the gospel, that's true about theology, there's a therefore. There are implications that flow afterwards. To understand the nuance of that, I would encourage you maybe to go back and listen to last week's exposition. And then I exhort, this is 
this is, can I just be vernacular for a second? This is so cool. This is so cool. This is so amazing. He says, I exhort. You know what the Greek word for exhort is? Parakaleo. Do you remember that word from John? Who is the paraclete, the noun version of this? The Holy Spirit, parakaleo, to call alongside. Paul's not commanding them here. He's coming alongside them just as the Holy Spirit does us. He uses the same verb. It's much less of a command and much more of an encouragement. You can do this. There are reasons to do this. He's urging the Romans, these Italians, respond to the mercies of God. You don't have to respond to my apostolic authority. It's not because I'm saying this. It's because of what God's done in the gospel. It's because we have access to God by grace through faith and not of ourselves. We don't have to work harder or do more or try better to please God. He is pleased because of his son by that mercy, by that grace, by that gift. Honor and follow and obey. I come alongside you. I urge you. I exhort you. I'm encouraging you. Brethren. Now, this might be a word you'd run over really fast. But what did we just study in chapter 11? That there is a trunk into which two kinds of believers are grafted. Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Read chapter 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians. They didn't get along very well. Read the book of Acts. They hated each other. When he calls both groups brethren, that's a big deal. I exhort you. I come alongside you, brethren, the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, Greeks and Gentiles, red and yellow, black and white, all, anyone who names Christ, those are our brethren. I just am always amazed that we have, a, we have a sibling relationship with other believers. This is our family. This is our family. We're going to spend eternity with each other. We might want to get to know each other now. We're a family of God. He is our father. What did Romans 8 tell us? He's adopted us. I love that, that picture. He adopted us from different unregenerate families. And put us into the body of Christ and said, brother and sister, with no genetic connection, but an amazing spiritual connection. We're a family. And we show the world the power of the gospel when, whether it's rich or poor, red, yellow, black, and white. I just love that song. They are what? All precious inside. Race. Background, gender, socioeconomic level, culture, language. We are brothers and sisters. I, one of the reasons that I love the gift that God has given me in being able to, to travel around the world and be with brothers and sisters across the oceans that, that don't speak our language, I don't speak theirs. And I can't, I just can't describe this. I don't want to be... Touchy-feely here, but I'm going to be touchy-feely for a second. There's an instant, there's an instant relationship that's, that's inexplicable because they love the Savior that I love. They believe the gospel I believe. 
They hold the doctrine that I treasure as precious to them. And when you have that, you you look at each other, and without language, you know in eternity, we're going to speak the same language, probably Southern English, and and we're going to speak the same language and be able to communicate forever praises to the Lamb. We are siblings. Don't miss the theology of the word brethren. And then we come into that phrase. I come alongside you, brothers, sisters, exhort you by the mercies of God. Now, this is interesting to me. This is, uh, I, I try not to bore you sometimes with the Greek language, but when you look at this in the Greek text, sometimes there's a word that just kind of flashes neon. It says, look at me, look at me. This, this is that word. Oiktirman, mercies. Now you say, why is that a flashing light? Because it's not the same word translated mercies as is back in chapter 11. The word in 32, chapter 11, verse verse 32, is the word elios. It's the normal workhorse uh, word for mercy. It's used almost exclusively in the New Testament as mercy. But here, Paul says, I exhort you now, come alongside you now, urge you now, by the mercies of God, plural, and he uses a different word. Why? This word is, it's softer. It's a more tender word than Elias. One writer refers to it as this. Warm feelings and compassions from God. You say, where does that come from? How can I get... It's in the dictionary. I didn't warm feelings of compassion for where do you get that? Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11. That's where you get it. If you don't own the theological implications and understanding of the gospel of justification by grace alone, through Christ alone, then the mercies of God won't motivate you. Do we understand how tender God was in the gospel toward us? Now, this is all laying the foundation for what's going to come later in this verse. But we have to get the foundation right. Here it is. Jesus is worthy of every and any sacrifice because of who he is and what he's done. If you want to Say, I exhort you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. That's, in other words, he's saying, Jesus is worthy of every and any sacrifice because of who he is and what he's done. That's what he's saying. I exhort you, I come alongside you. I'm I'm getting you ready to have mind and body devoted to God, devoted to, to living out what it means to show the world Christ. I'm motivating you because of the mercies of God that you understand and know. Don't take that lightly. It took us years, 120 sermons to get to this. Don't skip it. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is an empty Easter bunny. It's a hollow chocolate shell without the first 11 chapters. Don't forget He's worthy. I love what Peter says. 
Let me just read you the whole context here. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. Coming to Jesus as to a living stone which has been rejected by man. What a a picture. A living stone rejected by man. The idea is you're building a a temple. You're you're building a, a great edifice. And the stones that you're using that need to be perfect and square, the stone that was rejected by men is the stone on which God will build his holy house. It's choice and precious in the sight of God. And you also are living stones. We're a part of this building that God has put together, being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices, same language that we'll see at the end of the verse in Romans 12 too, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and then there's the New American Standard, the ESV. I don't think do this, this, this phrase justice. The best translation I've seen of this phrase is the old, reliable King James. New American Standard says, And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. This precious value then is for you who believe. The better translation of that is this. To those who believe he is precious. Just, just stop on that. To those who believe he is precious, which means he is worthy of any and all and every sacrifice to live ever only all for him. Remember Paul in Philippians 3 verse 7? In the con- you know it well, but listen to it in the context of what we've been talking about. Paul says, whatever Things were gained to me. These things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. You know what that means? Paul was, he had just explained his, his uh, Jewish resume. He was at the top of his game. He had made it to the top of the pinnacle. He was the guy to whom everyone looked. He was the teacher. He'd made it to the top. There was really nothing else for him to accomplish. He says, these gains, I count them as lost for the sake of Christ. Don't miss the phrase, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things. I consider all things to be loss, useless, to be thrown away in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Is that... Is that you? Does that reflect our hearts that we would consider everything in our life insufficient and insubordinate and as lost in comparison to the value of knowing the living resurrected Savior Jesus then he just throws this in for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ I just wonder if we, any of us, would fall into the category of for the sake of Christ having lost things and may be found in him. Then he goes right back to the gospel of Romans 1 uh, through 11. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. Doesn't that sound like Romans 1 through 3? But that which is through faith in Christ, that is Romans 3 through 6. 
the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Oh, that I may know him. He takes it from doctrine to personal relationship. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed. There's our word we'll find in Romans 2. Being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That's, do you hear what he's saying? I'm okay to die for Christ because I believe that I will live with Christ after I die. That's radical. That is radical. Do you live with such a belief in the resurrection that you would be willing to die for Jesus? That's what he's saying. You say, that's radical. That's for Jim Elliott. That's for the missionaries. No, this is normal Christianity. He says, I haven't already obtained it, or I'm not become perfect, but I press on. I'm moving toward this, that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind. We blew it yesterday. We might have blown it this morning, but he forgets what's lying behind. And I reach forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, I think of um, Acts chapter 20 when Paul says, I do not, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. <laughs> you want a life verse? Do, 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 do you want a candidate for a life verse? Here, here you go. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Doesn't account his life as anything? You only discount your own life when you perceive the value of his. Is Jesus, is his gospel so precious to us that we would count everything as loss compared to him? Now, we need to look ahead just a bit. And we'll come back to this in the rest of the passage in the coming weeks. We said it already. There are two realms of our experience. Verse one, our bodies. Verse two, our, our thinking, right? Commitment to Christ is to be cons- comprehensive, external and internal. Body and mind, material and immaterial, internal and external, comprehensive. Do you feel a little bit like I do when I, when I read this and go, that's, that's more radical than I'm, than I'm living. That's okay. Paul said, I haven't attained to it yet, but I'm going to keep pressing forward. Not only that, look at the rest of the chapter. The scope of our commitment is love for Christ, love for God here in the first two verses. Then it moves into love for the church and our exercise of our spiritual gifts. Then it moves into our exercise of our Christ-likeness in every category of society, even including the government. 
Our new way of living cannot be confined to one part of our lives on one day of our week. Listen, Jesus matters in your marriage. Jesus matters in the way you submit and honor your father and mother. Jesus matters in the way we parent. Jesus matters in how we drive, in how we eat, in what we eat. Jesus matters in whether we are kind or unkind, what we're like at work, what we say and what we don't say, if we stand and if we don't stand. In every dimension of life. You know why? Because God's word regulates every dimension of our life. It's a new way of living. Second Corinthians chapter 5, you know this. Listen to it, though, in the full context. For the love of Christ controls us. Well, just stop right there. The love of Christ controls us. Great debate, great debate over whether the love of Christ means Christ's love, his love for us controls us, or our love for him controls us. The Greek doesn't say one way or the other, which makes me think it's both. The love of Christ controls us. Does it? Does our love for Christ and his love for us control us? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all so that they who live might live no longer for themselves, but him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we now know him in this way no longer. In other words, there's something that transcends race, culture, socioeconomic condition. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, listen, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what kind of creature? What? New. He's a new creature. He's fundamentally different, which we'll get to in the next verse. Be transformed. He's a new creature. Old way of life, old things, passed away. New life, new things have now come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciling others, reconciliation. Namely, that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. If he's done this for us, why wouldn't we live for him and tell others how they can be reconciled? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. This is hard to even read. As though God himself were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I don't even have words for that. God has saved us so that we, when we share the gospel, are speaking for him. More than that, he's speaking through us. Then 21. And he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why Paul could say to the Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ. Living is Christ. Dying, better. Game. That's what it means 
to have this understanding of the mercies of God and to be urged to live differently. Isn't it interesting that uh, mercy is withholding what we deserve? Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. I, I want to confess to you, when I read this, this passage in Romans 12, I, I'm, I'm intrigued as to why Paul didn't use the term grace. That's what he's been measuring on for the first 11 chapters. What God gave us. I urge you, brethren, by the grace of God. Th that would have made more logical sense to me. He doesn't do that. He says, I urge you, brethren, by God's mercies. I call alongside you. I encourage you to live a radical life by his mercies. You know what that means? By considering that we are no longer objects of God's wrath and being amazed that hell is not our destination. He spared us by his mercy from hell. Kenneth Wiest summarizes this first component for radical, authentic Christian life. And I put this quote up for you just to look at with me. He says this, Doctrine must always precede living or exhortation. Since in doctrine the saint is shown his exalted position, which makes exhortation to a holy life make sense, a reasonable one. And in our doctrine, in doctrine, the saint is informed as to the resources of grace he possesses with which to obey the actual exhortations. That's a summary of what he's saying in the first phrase of Romans 12, 1. Right doctrine will put you on the path to holy living. But unholy living reveals incomplete, insufficient, insufficient and uh, possibly wrong doctrine. What we know and believe must be translated into what we do and how we think. All ethical decisions then are theological. In fact, we can say it this, like this. All ethical decisions are rooted in your theological convictions. Show me your life. Tell me what you think and I'll tell you what you believe. Show me what you believe about the gospel of Christ, and we can see how it roots, those roots make themselves fruit in our lives. Let me say it another way. Ethical failures are theological failures. That's why Paul spent 11 chapters to get our doctrine right before he comes to this point and tells us how to live. You know, Muslims who are serious about the Quran and actually try to live out its wicked, violent principles, make the front pages of our papers and secure a place in eternal torment. However, Christians who are serious about our Bibles and actually try to live it out, its loving and peaceful principles, it will touch every part of our personal world, and we will enjoy the presence of the Lord in heaven where there are indeed pleasures from Him forever. In the next few weeks, we're going to look more intently at the comprehensive applications and implications of what these verses mean. Aaron led us so well. 
In that hymn from the 19th century from Francis Ridley Havergal, the final, excuse me, it's the next to final, the penultimate um, uh, lyric verse says this, take myself, telling the Lord, take myself and I will be. And then he says it twice, ever, only, all for thee. Ever, what is the word? Only, all for thee. That is radical Christianity, which the Bible says is normal biblical Christianity. Now, if you're discouraged, and you could be, by looking at your life and saying, I missed the mark, Paul said, not that I've attained it, but I press on, right? He recognized where he didn't make it, and he was pushing forward. That's where we need to be, not giving up. I love the fact that you can take 30 steps away from God, 100 steps away from God, and it's one step back in repentance. Just one. Well, next week, we'll start getting into the actual exhortation. Let's pray.